Last week, I know that many of you guys were here and Pastor Kelsey spoke. She spoke on a message titled, Getting Uncomfortable. Everybody say, Getting Uncomfortable. Wow. It's lethargic, but I'll let it slide. Getting Uncomfortable. That was her message. There's going to be a lot of times where you guys are going to be repeating after me, so I'll let it slide this time. Getting Uncomfortable is something that is guaranteed to happen if you follow God. She even had a moment, it was our little social media clip or um, anything like that, that you see on Instagram or Facebook, anything like that. But that was kind of the moment that we decided to pick. She was even talking about, you know, prosperity gospel and things like that, where I don't know why, but sometimes we get this um, perception or this idea that if you follow the Lord and if you do everything right and you come to church and you tithe and you live your life perfectly, that you're going to be blessed beyond belief with like finances and all of this stuff. And it, it gives this false perception that your life will be easy and good if you follow God only. And she kind of brought up that that's not always true, or at least it doesn't feel that way. His grace is there. His blessings are there. But as far as being comfortable and you noticing it, it doesn't always come off that way, right? She was talking about how there's plenty of times where she's been asked to actually speak with people, which is something that she's not comfortable with, being an introvert or having social anxiety. And she was very open about all this, so I feel comfortable sharing it. But she was speaking how a lot of times when God asks her to do things in ministry and talk with people and pray with people or share messages, that's outside of her comfort zone, right? And so we learned that it's not exactly comfortable. So why is it that living for God, doing exactly what he wants us to do and following the word is something that results in us actually not feeling very enjoyable, right? Why is it that God calls us to these uncomfortable situations that aren't exact, exactly enjoyable? They're not exactly comfortable. And I kind of see this in other areas of life. I, uh, Growing up in middle school, probably until about my freshman year of college, uh, I'll let you guys in on a little secret. My nightly meal was an entire frozen pizza and like one or two Coca-Colas. That's pretty much what I survived on from beginning of high school, uh, or I'm sorry, the beginning of middle school until college, right? And I had nothing wrong with it. I thought it was good. But as I grew up, I kind of learned that that's not exactly the healthiest diet to have. And so uh, learning a little bit more, I'm like, ah, now I'm getting older. I should probably eat better. And shortly after that time, I got married to my wife, Taylor, who eats very healthy, eats very well. But I was not familiar with actually buying food that was healthy for you or buying food that was, you know, no GMOs and everything like that is so different nowadays, even from when I was in high school. But I wasn't familiar with buying food that was like good for you. And so going to the grocery store for the first time, I remember seeing the bread that I was supposed to buy versus the bread that I was used to buying. And the bread that I was used to buying, I think was like a dollar and 30 cents or something. The bread that I'm now buying that's healthier is like 550. And I'm like, now this doesn't make sense. This bread tastes way worse. It's not enjoyable at all. I don't like it. And yet I'm getting punished for it. And I have to pay more. It just doesn't make sense. Same thing with the gym. When I started going to the gym for the first time, I was like, this is an absolute scam. You go in there, you lift a lot of heavy weight, and you leave, and you're like all hot, you're all sweaty, and then you're sore the next day. This doesn't make any sense. And I had to pay to go do that to myself, right? Why am I getting punished to be uncomfortable. And it seems like one of those same things when we live for God or we follow all these directions that he's giving us, a lot of times it can be not enjoyable. So what's the deal? Why is that even, why, why is that, it just doesn't seem fair, right? Well, number one, 
How many of you guys know we live in a fallen world? Have you guys ever heard that before? Yes, you have. I'm sure you have. When God created Adam and Eve and we had the Garden of Eden, really the design was that everything that they would ever need was there for them. They didn't need anything else, and all they had to do really was involve, like follow his instruction. And when that instruction was broken, all of a sudden, not only was mankind fallen, but the world fell with it. And so we live in this world that is contrary to God's will or intention or design. So when we are experiencing God's will, his contrary, and his design, all of a sudden it feels uncomfortable because the environment that we're in, the environment that we're used to operating in, is so different from what God intended. Does that make sense? Yes? No? With me? Cool. Okay. So number one, that is one of the reasons that it feels unpleasant when you step into what God's asking you to do, because that's not the environment we're used to. And we have, live in a fallen world. But number two, it's because we live with something called our flesh. Everybody say flesh. Everybody say spirit. We live with our flesh and we live with our spirit, even though we've been born again, which I'll get to, so I shouldn't get ahead of myself. We still live with our flesh and our spirit. And uh, I feel like I have a different answer every time somebody asks me this, but typically when people ask me, I've never read the Bible, I don't know where to start, where should I start? I kind of change up my answers here and there, but Romans is always in one of my top three areas that is suggesting to people to start because Paul talks so much about what we still even today deal with shortly after entering into a life committed to Christ, right? When you enter into a life committed to Christ, if I don't know how you guys came into church or figured out about God existence or anything like that. But when I was introduced to God, it was almost like, yeah, God loves you and he wants to take care of you and everything will be good if you follow him. That's true. But I interpreted that as life would be easy if I followed him. And that's actually not true. I think following God is very simple, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. Does that make sense? And the reason that it's not easy is because we live with our flesh. So Paul kind of tackles that head on. We're going to look at Romans 6. We're starting in verse 3, and we're going to go all the way to 14. I will do my best not to stop in the middle of it a lot, but I might. So this is Paul actually writing the uh, letter to the book of Romans or to the church of Romans. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So if you guys have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been born again, you have been baptized into Christ Jesus and into his death, okay? You put to death your flesh. You put to death that old life. Let's continue on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Everybody say newness. I think a lot of times the, the pitfall or the trouble that people fall into when they first hear about God or they make the decision to make Jesus their Lord and Savior, they say, yes, it's this emotional moment because you really do feel born again. Like it happens, it changes in you. But then I feel like you enter into your next day of life and there's some things that maybe you were used to doing that you feel God is asking you no longer to do, like sinful things, right, outside of God's will. And then you just think, okay, I'm not going to do those things. But now what happens is you're left with not doing those things and you don't know how to replace those things with anything. So it's almost like you just sit still. Does that make sense? You don't know how to enter into this newness of life 
You just know how to put to death the old. Does that make sense? Okay. Paul is telling us that we too might walk in newness of life. So there is an instruction to continue on into this newness of life after we meet Christ. It goes on to say this. For if we have been un- I'm sorry, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It goes on. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, and death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Number 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll finish this out before I unpack it. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. So the whole reason I bring this up is that we see that even though we're talked about um, with being born again and coming to life with Jesus Christ, it's kind of this weird dynamic where when we come to church, we hear about living for Christ. We, We hear that everything is new and you no longer have to struggle with sin and it's all been put to death and that's been put behind you. You have new life. But Paul himself, who I oftentimes would call the MVP of the Bible until somebody was like, well, what about Jesus? And I was like, it's a good point. So I know I try not to say that anymore, but a lot of times the reason that I like seeing everything that Paul talks about is because not that Jesus didn't do this, but he, he relates so much to what we experience on a daily basis. Jesus didn't sin. Paul did sin. <laughs> Before Paul was born again and he was Saul, he actually experienced a lot of walking outside of God's will, right? And so we see Paul straight up acknowledging the fact that we too live with flesh and we live with spirit. So even though we've been born again, even though we have this newness of life that we're supposed to walk in, Paul literally talks about how we still have to deal with the kind of burden of our flesh desiring things, right? It says, number 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Our flesh still has its own passions, right? If you look at like the seven deadly sins, which we'll look at in a bit, but one of the easiest ones to really look at, I think, is like gluttony, right? We look at food and gluttony. When you are hungry and you want even more and more, even if you're already full, if your body wants more and more, that is quite literally your flesh having its own desires, its own passions. It needs to be satisfied, right? So Paul recognizes that and he says, don't do it. Don't present yourself to unrighteousness like that. Instead, present yourself to God. And so when we hear these things, I think the automatic um, solution that we come up with in our head is, okay, I need to just stop sinning, right? I need to just stop doing the things that God's asking me to do and then everything will be fine. But I actually look at the Bible a little bit closer and I realized it never really just leaves that as the solution. That's not the end goal. That's not what's promised for us to resist temptation and walk in this newness of life. That's not actually how we get there. 
So how do we stop those desires? How do we quit the urges? And how do we say no to the temptations that plague us? James tells us that if we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, then the devil will flee. But if you're like me and you read that, you read, resist the devil and he will flee, and you just bypass, submit yourselves to God. For some reason, I'm so stuck on like the practical of what I'm used to doing, and I have a hard time acknowledging and really instilling in myself the spiritual exercises that God is calling us to do. But do you see the difference there? Don't blank out that first sentence. Submit yourselves to God, therefore to God, and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. In fact, if we go beyond this scripture, this is why it's important not to cherry pick scripture. That's what they told me in my internship. A lot of people will cherry pick scripture. They'll take like one verse that they really like and put it on their mantle or on their Facebook posts or whatever it might be or in their Instagram bio. And that's great, but it helps so much when you look at the context of where that verse came from. If we look at James 4, 7 again, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. However, if we look at James 4 in, as a whole, this was James even going to the beginning of the book of James. James is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. James is the same person that told people that, that, um, that faith without works is dead, told them to tame their tongue. He's got all these kind of instructions and advice for them, right? It was like a TED talk to the tribes of Israel almost on how to live for Christ. And in that same book, if we look at the beginning of chapter four, starting at verse one, this is before he says, submit yourselves to God and the devil will flee from you, right? Says this, starting at verse one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This was not, in my opinion, James just talking about people that had difference of opinions, right? like we're so used to seeing online or even in real life, like Thanksgiving's coming up. I know a lot of people are going to have a lot of fun, interesting conversations at the Thanksgiving dinner table about like politics and things that are not fun to talk about. That is a common thing that happens at Thanksgiving. This is not, I don't think, what James was talking about. When he talks about that the passions that are at war within you, in my opinion, I think he's actually referring to that constant divide and that tension between your flesh and your spirit. Does that make sense? Now, I think it does have a double meaning. They obviously are quarreling with each other. So he's acknowledging that as well. But I do think that this has to do with that inner turmoil that we all deal with. It goes on to say this, number two, or verse two. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And it's no wonder why when we walk around, I think, in my opinion, trying to do the advice that the world gives us all the time, like the things that I hear are things like investing in stocks and making the right financial moves. And that's me putting my faith in a provider that is not the Lord. And then I wonder why I have such a hard time hearing and connecting with God. It's because when I'm making friends with the world and trusting in something else, I'm making an enemy of God. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that God hates me, but that just means that I'm making an enemy to the things that he's trying to set up for me to succeed in. You see that? See the difference? Okay, moving on. 
Verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Hi, Georgia. Did you hear the word of God and you wanted to be a part of it? Whose child is this? Oh, it's Abigail's. If you don't know, I know Abigail and Georgia very well, so that was a joke. Are you having fun in kids' church? Yeah. Okay, good. Good. So we were talking about we were talking about murder and covetous people and moving on. So verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then we finally hit our verse with all of that context that James lays out. We finally hit our verse then submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, if you were to just cherry pick that scripture, not only would you not get that context, but you would miss the very following verse, which is in verse eight, which says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Therefore, finally, however long into my sermon, the answer to actually resisting sin and no longer struggling with it, I don't think it's about just resisting the devil. The answer is to draw near to God. This is an active decision that you have to make. This means spending time, your own free time in prayer. This means spending time and making sacrifices. If you're as, as trivial as it sounds, listening to certain types of music will actually make it more difficult for you to hear the voice of God. I say that from personal experience because I told Pastor Susie that it was a fool's errand and it wasn't true and that I was going to prove it to her. So she told me, don't listen to secular music for a year only listen to worship music. And I was like, I'm going to prove to you that that does nothing. So I did it for an entire year. The only time I listened to secular music when I was at worship and it was stuck on the radio because I worked in a warehouse and I didn't have a choice. Anyways, got to that end of the year. I'm like, I made it. No difference. And I put on my first song of secular music. And it wasn't even that I didn't, uh, it wasn't even that I was like offended by it. It was that it just felt like empty carbs. Like, eating styrofoam instead of food. I was just like, there's, there's nothing to this music. There's no purpose. There's no life. There's no reason that this music even exists. It was the weirdest experience. And what had happened was my avenue for enjoying something, I had dedicated to only being something that would glorify God. Therefore, I could hear his voice more clearly. When I took that away, it didn't give me anything. It was supposed to be entertainment. It was supposed to be satisfaction, but it no longer had purpose. Do you see the difference there? And so doing these things, it's not about resisting sin, but it is about drawing closer to God. So now we get into the second point of my sermon, which I am not over on time. So you're good. You can stick there. You can stay with me on this. The second point of my sermon, we draw closer to God. <clears throat> so the answer is that we sow into the spirit instead of sowing into our flesh. Now, what, like my kind of testimony in growing up, it had a lot to do with like rebellion and partying and all this stuff. So when I think about sowing into flesh or investing into my flesh, it was things that would make my flesh feel good, right? A lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, stuff like that. But for other people, it can actually be a little bit more tricky. It could be things like being absolutely obsessed with physical 
fitness, for example, right? And all of a sudden what happens? You are tracking, not that tracking calories is like bad or good or anything, but I'm saying if you get obsessed with that lifestyle and idolize it, all of a sudden things can happen like body dysmorphia. It's never good enough. You always want to be, I'm a guy, so I'm used to this being the goal, but you always want to be bigger. You want to be stronger. You want to have bigger muscles and it's more about perfection and every little thing you do, you criticize. And then all of a sudden you're not going to church or these Bible studies or these things you had carved out from God because you want to be going to the gym. And all of a sudden your idol is your physical fitness rather than like worshiping God. Does that make sense? The difference there? I only bring those two up because when you look at your flesh, your physical body, those are the best two examples I can think of is doing things that make your flesh feel better, drinking drugs, partying in my case, or you can actually go on the opposite side of it. But both of those methods are sowing into your flesh, investing into your flesh. Galatians 6, 8, something else written by Paul says this, Chapter six, verse eight, for the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Everybody say corruption, corruption for the one that sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But listen to this part, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And so we see that sowing into our flesh in the same two ways that I was saying are things that could lead you to corruption. Why? Because there's all sorts of corruption that happens when you dedicate your life to, in my case, drinking drugs and partying and everything like that. And you go into the spiral and downfall. But in the same way, even with physical fitness, and I've seen it happen, if people get obsessed, it can lead to things that are really dis or not healthy, like body dysmorphia. It's these things that are literally corrupting you from the inside out when you sow into yourself. Please don't get legalistic and walk away from church thinking, okay, so I can't ever have you know, a drink ever and I can't ever go to the gym. That is not what I'm saying. It's not a black and white thing. It's about where you are investing your time, your intention, your effort, and your worship. If you sow into the flesh, Galatians tells us that it will reap corruption. But to the one who sows into the spirit from it will reap eternal life. I think it makes so much sense. And this is uh, something that just proves itself to be more and more true the more that I experience life. Um, but <clears throat> I get what he's saying here because I kind of talked to the youth group about this the other night, but oftentimes if you look at any sin that a person is struggling with, and I mentioned this in our morning group prayer too, but if you look at a sin that a person is struggling with, a lot of times it's this distorted version that the enemy has created, but it's a distorted version of what God has already created. So what do I mean by that? If you look at just the, the general seven deadly sins, pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, sloth. Look at those. Those are all things. If you walked up to somebody and you met them for the first time, you had a conversation with them, kind of got their vibe, understood who they were, talked to them for five minutes, and then you walked away and somebody said, hey, who is that person? What are they like? And you were to describe them as, well, they're prideful, they were greedy, they were filled with wrath and envy, they were lustful, they're practicing gluttony and you're kind of just a slothful person. That doesn't sound like the best person in the world, right? But those are the things that are offered to us that people fall into and they are deadly. Now on the flip side of that, you can literally see the reflection of what God had originally intended in a lot of these. And the way that the devil took those was jealous of God's creation and twisted them to be his own thing. Because with something like wrath, we literally see the opposite of that being joy, right? 
with something like lust, a lot of times, especially for me that was walking through it in high school, I struggled a lot with lust. And the only thing that worked, again, was not just trying to cut it out of my life, but the only thing that worked was presenting the real alternative as a solution being love. You have lust and then you have true love, which God is true love. Does that make sense? All of these things that God made and created, the devil saw them, was jealous of them, and has distorted them and made his own alternative to present to us in the world. And those are the things that I feel like we oftentimes fall into. Those are the things that we can sow into our flesh with. Galatians 5, through 23 says this, and this is obviously one of the most famous or infamous scriptures in the Bible, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. So the interesting thing is, let's walk back to our example. You walked up to somebody and you talked with them and five minutes later, you had all these terrible things to say about them versus if you walked up to somebody, walked away and somebody asked you what they were like and you said, oh, I don't know. They were filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's probably a person that you would be pleased to meet, right? Those are the fruits of the spirit, which means when we walk and we draw closer to God, when we sow into the spirit to experience or reap eternal life, that's that newness of life that we are talking about. That newness of life that was promised to us to walk in. When we walk in newness of life, the spirit actually is moving in us and the fruits of the spirit are evident. Things like joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, things like that are evident when people even just talk to us because the spirit is constantly moving in us when we're drawing closer to God, when we're sowing into the spirit rather than the flesh. And so this isn't a message or an instruction that we need to just stop sinning or doing bad things. Or if you guys, you know, wake up one day and you're like, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to fall into this temptation that I've fell into a thousand times before. Today's the day where I break it. And then what do you know? You get back to the end of the day and you've broken it. This is not a message to say, okay, you just need to stop doing it. This is truly a message that says, if you draw near to God and you sow into the spirit, it will be evident. It will be so evident in you that when people interact with you and talk to you, they're not even going to see anything outside of just you walking in God's will. And they're going to want that for themselves. And now you have an opportunity to minister to them. Does that make sense? Yes, you with me? Okay. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says this. This is again, Paul. It says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those, mine cut off, to those who are of the household of faith. So when I read this, and I was just talking about this this morning in our announcements, I think of our events. I think about the interactive movie. I think about Christmas in the park. I think about Christmas tree giveaway. All the different aspects where we have come together as a community, as a church, and we meet new people that we may not met before. And we realize that if we don't grow weary in doing good and allowing the spirit to move through us, then we actually have the opportunity to minister to them and for them to encounter God through us. And I hate to bring this up, but it does say, as we have the opportunity, which means we will not always have the opportunity. I don't know what tomorrow holds. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. And also nobody knows when the Lord is returning. So whether I walk out on the street and get hit by a car tomorrow or the Lord comes back, 
Either way, I know that I'm not always going to have the opportunity to do good. And so looping all the way back to the beginning of this message, it can be uncomfortable to walk in what God has for you. Absolutely. It can be uncomfortable to sacrifice our time, our money, our interest into the things that God is asking us to do. But it always comes back to not only drawing close and near to him, and then we'll experience that eternal life, which isn't just afterlife, but here on earth while we're living. But it also allows us to have the opportunity while we still have the chance to, to minister to others. Does that make sense? That's what it means and don't grow weary in doing good. There's so many times I can tell you from serving in ministry for as long as I have, I don't know how many years now I've lost count, but I'll get to the end of the day and I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I prepared a message today to do this on Sunday morning. Right after this, we're decorating for Christmas tree giveaway. And then after that, I got to go home and prepare food and games for youth group. And then we got to do youth group. And then I tear down, especially when we were meeting in the Marriott, there was so many times where I would get to the end of the day and just be exhausted. But Paul kind of is... Uh, encouraging us in those moments to see the bigger picture of it. Do not grow weary in doing good because you never know what tomorrow brings and you never know the kind of person that you're making an impact on that's going to have that encounter with God because we're not always going to have the opportunity. Make sense with me? Good. I don't have a lot left, I promise, but we're moving on. Psalm 37.4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I bring this up, I think, almost every time I preach with the exception of the last time that I did. But almost every other time that I can think of, I bring this up because I had such a revelation on it. As a kid, I, was, I grew up Catholic. I went to mass, almost called it church. I went to mass and I pretty much never really walked away with anything. But the one time that I did walk away with something, it was this verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And me being seven years old, I'm like, if you pray to God, he'll give you anything you want. That was my interpretation, right? And that's simply not true. That's not what this verse is saying. It's a lot what we were talking about before. When you sow into the spirit rather than the flesh, what starts to happen? Delight yourself in the Lord and all of a sudden, the things that you desire become what God desires. You see the difference there? It's not you get anything you currently want in your heart. It's that when you delight in him and draw near to him, all of a sudden you'll see a transformation where the things that you want are the things that God wants. And that's when really cool things happen because now when you pray, you're only praying God's will. The things you want is what he wants. So when you ask for them to happen, of course they're gonna happen. That makes sense, right? But in order to have those desires in us, we need to draw close to him and we need to delight in him. The Bible doesn't promise easy paths if we follow God, but it does promise the right path if we follow God. It does promise an actual direction and a navigation. I think of an actual GPS and on the little screen on the map, it's always just a plain blue line straight to my destination. Looks simple. But half the time when I actually go out there, there's crazy drivers in the way. It's like rainfall. There's a cat that runs out in front of my car. All sorts of things that are not on that GPS, right? And his word is a little bit similar. I'm still going to get to my destination and his path will be straight. It may not be easy, but it's absolutely the right way to go. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And then finally, Psalm 119, 105 is quite literal uh, example, I feel like of that GPS analogy, but your word is a lamp to my feet 
and a light to my path. And the last thing I'll say about that is the revelation that I had on that. I would always just read, okay, God's word is a light for us to follow. End of story. This is actually saying two different things. Your word, God's word, the Bible, is not only a lamp unto your feet, which what does that do? That shows you where you currently are in your surroundings, right? It gives you percep or, uh, perception of the things around you and you kind of get a base of everything that is around you and the situation that you are currently in. But it's also a light onto your path. Not only is his word going to show you where you're at and the things that you were supposed to be noticing and give you the right perception of those, but it's also a path on where you go next. It's two different things. And so that's why it's so important to be in the word. We don't just get into the word to figure out the next step. We get into the word sometimes for him to kind of show us what's going on currently where we are at. And then as we continue to get in his word, we will notice when it's time to take that next step because he will speak directly to us. Make sense? All good? Everybody with me? I'm getting a lot of blank stares. I, you guys are saying, yes, I'm with you, but I'm just saying, I'm just making sure you guys are with me. Okay, cool. So we have a few minutes left. I'm going to pray over us, but this, I know this was a very practical message, but I'm going to pray over us and just encourage us to actually look forward into this next um, season or event in Chapel Valley. Because the truth of the matter is, as people are walking into church every Sunday, of course, but also especially these events, they're coming in being ruled and they have uh, something has dominion over them, right? We talked about sowing into their flesh and it leads into corruption because as you do those things that you think are going to provide a way out or provide you comfort that aren't of the Lord, it starts to grow and build something unhealthily in you and you rely on it. And a lot of people that come into our events, that's what they're dealing with. It's going to be different all across the board, the things that they're struggling with, but they're looking for a way out. And I know that the only way out is Jesus. And so that's something that I want to encourage you guys to remember as we do these events at the training that we had on Friday. I said this many times. Yes, we need a ton of help, but I would much rather have just one person that's willing to be there and pray with people than have a hundred people that just want to help like lift things. I want people that are helping partner with us at this event to actually be ready to have people that come in uh, encounter the Lord through them. Does that make sense? And if you feel like, I don't know how to do that, I'm just asking you to come and pray with me after service because I'll walk you through it. It's nothing secret. I just believe that the Lord actually wants to be with you and I, I, I would be happy to pray for you guys in that way. But if you guys would join me in prayer, we're gonna finish up and then we're going to enter in straight into our Christmas decorating party. We'll start with lunch. But Father God, I thank you for everything um, that you are speaking to us in the ways that you provide uh, our next steps. Lord, I thank you that as your word says, that your word is a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our path. I thank you that you give so much practical instructions in your word, but you also just show us the bigger picture and the most important thing, which is to draw close to you, to have that relationship with you where we know nothing else but to hear your word. God, I pray that your word would be something that where it's not foreign to us, that we would say that we wouldn't come into church wondering, like, I don't know how to hear the voice of God, but Lord, that you'd be speaking loudly and clearly because you are a good, faithful God. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and powerful, that every single time that we get into it, that we can gain new revelation or revel, yeah, revelation because your word is alive 
and true and well. Lord, I thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the things that we read in your word, we don't ever have to worry about them expiring or not being true, but that they will continue to be true today and forever always. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are a loving God, a faithful God, and I can't wait to see the ways that you're going to be working in and through us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.